Virginia. And, uh, and so I don't always notice things that you guys just take for granted, uh, or, or eventually they, they stand out as a contrast to me. And so uh, if you're from New England, when's the last time you actually noticed how severe the ditches are on either side of your guys' roads? Every year. Every year. I, I actually called our resident road agent, uh, Dave Rice, this week. Yes, called him and said, Dave, I'm from Virginia. Is it just me or are the ditches here just more uh, steep, uh, you know, and, and perilous? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, why do they put those on the side of the road? He goes, well, we have this thing called water, and if we don't get it off the road, it turns to ice, right? Ah, awesome. Good word. So, so all of our roads crown, and he goes, that, that's why one of your tires will, you know, wear differently, and you have to rotate your tires. Perfect. What's up, Josh? How did this, you know, why are you calling me about the road? Well, since Grace has been taking driver's ed... I've been spending more time in the passenger seat. And, you know, it's just a different perspective, isn't it? She's done great. I really have nothing to say about it except for I'm not used to sitting in the passenger seat. I had one dad talking to me about it. He goes, I can't even look. I have to look somewhere else because it seems that our young people, as they're learning to drive, hug the white line. Now, that might be better than the yellow line, okay? But the white line has a severe ditch on it, and it makes us nervous. Now, it just isn't the actual road of life uh, or the roads that we drive on that are perilous on either side, but also there seem to be ditches on either side of the highway of life, and perhaps none more severe, none more dangerous, none more causing you to maybe swerve from one side to go to the other side than the road of leadership. Peril exists along either side of the road of authority. Satan has two devilish ditches that he wants us to fall into. On the one side, you have passivity, in which you abandon leadership, you disengage, you want to run. The other side, you swerve over from that, is typically overly active, demanding, dictating, controlling, squelching, squashing those underneath your care. How many have traveled along the road of leadership have not at one time or another swerved between those two ditches? In a fallen world, I think we are left to ask, can authority only be handled abusively and in self-interest, even in a church? Can authority only be used abusively and for self-interest, even in the church? In a fallen world, I think we're really asking, where are some leaders that we can trust? Where can we find a leader that we can really trust in? Now, many of us are exhausted in this search. But let me warn you, cynicism is very dangerous when it comes to leadership. Because the absence of leadership does not automatically lead to everyone else happily coexisting, right? Freedom without leadership is a mirage. We can look at judges to see that what happens when every single man does that which is right in his own eyes. The book of Judges shows you that anarchy is not a pretty thing. 
So we need a biblical picture of leadership. To look at this, we're going to look at John 10, verses 1 through 21. They are the words of Jesus. You see all the red there. And what we're going to find out is this. Here's the aim. There are plenty of phony leaders, but Jesus is God's true leader for God's people. Jesus is God's true leader for God's people. Follow him because there are a ton of phony leaders out there. We know that's the point of our text because we can remember the context. Our context gives us a clue to what the point of the passage is. You are good Bible students, and you have already heard that John 5 through 10 is a unit. John 10 actually wraps up the first half of the Gospel of John. And so John actually has 5 through 10 building one whole thought. And we've been in it for a while together, and we know if you're our guest, we'll bring you right up to speed. Jesus, at this point in chapters 5 through 10, has been resisted tooth and nail by the religious establishment. He's there in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem because there is a festival feast. And just imagine that all of Israel has descended upon Jerusalem with heightened expectations because they know about this Jesus guy. But there's a fracture between Jesus and the religious establishment. It reaches its height. We just heard about it last week in John chapter 9. There was a man who was born blind. This man who was born blind was given his sight by Jesus. It's a miracle. And the man declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah they've been waiting for. And here's how they answer him. Look at chapter 9. That's the large number if you're, used to, or if you're not used to using a Bible. John 9, 34. That's the small number. John 9, 34, then they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Now we know the chapter headings in our Bible, in our verses, to help us understand where we are in a passage. We're not added until the 13th century. So John intends for us there not to be any break between John chapter 9 and John chapter 10. They just are supposed to flow together. And it's with this fracture between Jesus and the religious leadership that Jesus is finally ready to say, truly, truly, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Compared to the rejection of the religious leadership of a man who's just been healed blind, there is no rejoicing that he is healed. It is just a rejection. Jesus is finally ready to say, I am the good shepherd. You can't understand this passage rightly unless you answer verses 19 through 21. 19 through 21 give you this, there's a break here, there's a tone, because people hear what he's saying, and they're going to say he has a demon or he's insane. Why would they respond that way? You have to answer that, right? If you're going to preach this sermon, why would they come to that conclusion? Because what Jesus is saying is this, you are rogue traitors who can't deliver for God's people. I am God's true leader. Follow me. And it's because of that they want to say, no, no, he has a demon or he's insane. This passage provides for us three reasons why you should follow Jesus as your true leader. He's God's leader. And this passage is here to persuade you that you should follow Jesus. 
Because unlike the phony leaders, Jesus knows his sheep, point one. Jesus nurtures his sheep, point two. And he dies and lives for his sheep, point three. Why should you follow Jesus? Because unlike the phony leaders, he knows his sheep, he nurtures his sheep, and he dies and he lives for his sheep. He's not like the phony leaders. He's God's leader for God's people. Well, first point, you should follow Jesus this morning because he knows you as his sheep. How do we get that? Well, in verses 1 through 5, we know that the sheep, here it is, hear his voice. They know his voice, and he calls them by name. You hear this listening, that the ear is the most important organ for Christians, right? It is this body part that begins to distinguish them as Christ followers. They hear the shepherd's voice. Now, in order to unpack that and get all of its meaning, we need to know something about the ancient Near East and a little bit about shepherding. This metaphor is about sheep and a sheepfold, okay? And Jesus' audience would have known this intuitively, but we have to kind of just go back in time and understand what's going on. The picture we have here is that there is a village and that there is this independent sheepfold that several families, several shepherds would share. Now, as Americans, we'd be all nervous, right? We're like, why would I want to mix my sheep with somebody else's sheep? My sheep could get mixed up with theirs, and I wouldn't have my profit, how would I be able to distinguish my sheep? But that culture, they're not worried about that, right? Because this is what happened. The shepherd would know his sheep. That's the whole point of this. And so various families would bring their sheep in to that sheepfold at night. They would hire a watchman. He'd stand guard all night long until the next morning when the shepherd showed up to work, that watchman would allow the true shepherds to come in. And here's what would happen. The shepherd would call out his sheep. Each shepherd had their own call, each noise that they made, and the sheep would follow him. That was very typical. But here's what is not typical of our good shepherd. The one thing that was absolutely unprecedented back then was this idea that a shepherd would have an individual name for every single one of his sheep. So think about having a hundred sheep and here comes the good shepherd in. He says, on Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, or, or however he did it. And sure enough, they'd all get up and they'd all walk out one at a time. But the Greek here in John 10 actually literally says he calls them each by name. And we see that practically work out through the gospel accounts. Aren't you encouraged by this? Remember John 1 when he finds Nathaniel? And he says, oh, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And what does Nathaniel say to him? How'd you know me? Remember Zacchaeus, who just wants to get a peek of him? And he says, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm going to stay at your house today. But my favorite one, we're going to get there in John 20. It's Mary. She's there at the tomb. Christ has died. He's resurrected. She sees what, well, she doesn't know it's him. She thinks it's a gardener. She goes, Hey, master, sir, do you know where they laid my Lord? She's looking right at him. She doesn't know it's him, but then the lights come on. You have to ask yourself, how does she then recognize that it's Christ? One word, Mary. He says her name. It's the whole point of John, that faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. You're not at any disadvantage having lived today, having not lived then. You can hear God's voice. He can call you by name and you recognize him. That is the essence of biblical Christianity, that the sheep hear his voice. 
So if you're here and you want to know, am I a Christian? The most simple definition I can give you is this. You hear his voice, you recognize who he is, and you follow him. Listen to John 10, 4 through 5. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Unlike the false teachers of Jesus' day, Jesus knows his sheep, and the sheep know him. Follow Jesus, because Jesus actually knows his sheep by name. Point number two, follow Jesus because he actually nurtures his own people. Our second point, why follow Jesus? Christ nurtures his people. Look at verse six. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Christ is trying to be this great teacher, making an analogy between shepherd and sheep. They don't get it. And so now in verses 7 through 10, Christ is going to say, let me just bring it down for you to the most simple form. You didn't get it in principle. I was talking about third person. There's this shepherd out there, and he has these sheep out there, and this is how it works. You know what? If you can't understand a third person metaphor, let me just move it to the first person personal. I'm not going to talk about the shepherd out there. I'm going to say, I am the door. I am the good. If you're not getting it, what this analogy is all about. It's about me. And so he moves from third person to first person singular. Look at verses 7 through 10. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, right, you can kind of hear it. If you, don't, if you didn't get it the first time, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He goes from a metaphor to just a bold exclamation right in your face. I am the door. Now, this metaphor is to help us to learn that there is no way in being able to take part of this shepherd's protection or provision without going through him. You go, you go in through him to enter into his protection. You go out through him into that lovely pasture that you so need for your flourishing. And that language of in and out comes from the Old Testament. Some of you are loving trying to figure out how John connects with the Old Testament. Well, here's one. I'm going to make you turn one place. Just one place this morning. Turn to Numbers chapter 27. That's to the left. Go back. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 27, verses 15 through 17. Numbers 27, 15 through 17. As you're turning there, just here, this is Moses. Moses is not able to lead his people into the promised land. He's going to raise up another deliverer. And you're going to listen to the language that is placed on Joshua. Joshua is going to be the one to lead them in. This is Numbers 27, 15. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. Skip down to verse 21. 
And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out. At his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. Jesus is picking up on this theme, and this is what he wants you to know. I am Joshua in the full-fledged form, bringing you into the promised land. Provision, providing you all the protection that this Old Testament picture pointed to. He is the shepherd that would provide and protect his sheep for life to the full. I think it's just another way of him saying what he says in verse 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. It is in this contrast that Christ comes to give life while the others are wanting to take away your life that should encourage you this morning to follow Jesus. You should follow Jesus because he's not like the thieves and the robbers. All they want to do is steal and kill and destroy. They, they look at sheep and they think of them as their prey, as their loot to be used and abused for their self-interest. It's hard not to think about the leaders of chapter 9. The religious leaders of chapter 9, with this man who's been born blind, who is now healed, he comes to them. They revile him, saying, you are his disciples. We are the disciples of Moses. Verse 28. Then in verse 34, they hurl insults at him. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? It reaches its climax here, and they cast him out. They are not concerned for this blind man. They are not rejoicing in his newly given sight. They abuse him, they insult him, and they reject him. It sure looks like thieves and robbers, doesn't it? But that's not what God's true leader is like. Jesus is God's true leader for his people. And unlike those phony leaders, Jesus does not cast this man out, but he searches him out. And he finds him, this one all by himself, who's withstood that trial, right? All by himself. And he calls him into true worship. And he leads him into his protection and his provision. Unlike those phony leaders, Jesus does not place everything on this sheep's back. No, this true leader does everything for the sheep. Everything for the sheep to have life. Life to the full. I have to ask you, my friend, how do you define life? And a full life. Is life to the full life without problems? Ooh, <laughs> that would be hard to, hard to resist that one. Is life to the full material abundance? Is life to the full that everybody accepts you and likes you? We have so many different ways of thinking about life to the full. But what about God? How does God fit into your definition of life to the full? Regardless of how easy your life is going, regardless of how much money you have stored in the bank, regardless of how many people like you, can it really be life to the full if you can't shake your guilt and your shame for what you've said, thought, 
done. If your life is characterized by guilt and shame, can it really be life to the full? This is why you should follow the true shepherd. He came to give his life, gave his sheep life and life to the full, and it comes by rescuing you from danger. Remember the metaphor here is sheep and shepherd. And we all know from stories of Jacob and David that every now and again, just because you have sheep, you as a shepherd are going to be in harm's way. Because there are lions and tigers and bears. Yeah, definitely. And the only thing between them becoming a rack of lamb, a lamb kebab, is you. And so Jesus says in verses 11 through 21, I'm the true shepherd because this is not my job. It's not a gig I have. Like if this pastor thing doesn't work out, I'm going to be a game show host. No, he says, I'm God's true leader for my people. This is who I am. This is what I do. I am the true shepherd. Look at verses 11 through 16. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming. He leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Unlike those hired hands, this shepherd gives his life for the sheep to protect, to protect them, right? Protect them from whatever danger they may face. If you're a non-Christian, are, are you aware that there might be dangers that are more grave to you than just what can physically happen to you in the here and now? Well, something to consider. In verse 17 and 18, Jesus moves from the metaphor to being explicit about his mission. Listen to 17 through 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. His mission is to lay down his life for the sheep as a sacrifice for them. Jesus is referring to his crucifixion and his resurrection. His crucifixion is how he rescues you from danger. His resurrection is how he gives you life. Because the reality is, the danger that you face as a sheep is not first from the world. The danger you face as a sheep is first from God. Did you catch that? The danger that you face is not first in this world. It's first from God. Because the Bible says we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all have wandered, gone our own way. We've all rebelled against this God. We've all wanted to be our own shepherds. And we deserve the condemnation of God, not the rescue of God. But on the cross, Jesus gives his life for the sheep. He takes the curse, takes our guilt, takes the penalty, takes the rejection, and he dies in our place. And if you're new to Christianity, he did this on purpose. 
He did it voluntarily. He did it willingly. This should begin to motivate love and joy and why you should follow Jesus because he willingly, voluntarily, out of love, did this for you. You probably heard it, I mean, as good Bible students. How many times was it? Six, seven times? He lays down his life for a sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I lay down my life of the sheep. He did this. One commentator, I loved how he said it. He goes, this is what one commentator said. Death was not his fate. It was his deed. He wasn't passive. So what he was doing to secure the sheep. He says, death was his most triumphal act. Never was he more victorious than when he was on the cross. He was actually doing his work while dying. He did that so that sheep might not die. Do you see the contrast? Predators live when sheep die. But us, the sheep, can live because our shepherd dies. And that has to blow your mind. If you're not letting that blow your mind, you're not thinking. Why would you sacrifice your life for sheep? Because you know that if the shepherd dies, what's going to happen to the sheep? They're going to scatter. And what happened when the shepherd died on the cross? The disciples scattered. But here's the good news. Our shepherd didn't stay dead. He rose again. And that's the greatest proof why you should follow Jesus. Third reason why you should follow Jesus, he dies and lives for his people. He dies and lives to bring you life to the full. Hey, family, you should follow Jesus completely and joyfully. You should follow Jesus completely and joyfully because he died so that you could live. He took the cross so you could have the crown. He took the punishment so you could have his reward. Follow the shepherd who becomes the slaughtered lamb. Revelation 7, 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. let's pause and reflect on how this could apply to our lives. If that is what the good shepherd is like, doesn't that begin to clarify what all the under shepherds should be like? Well, who are the under shepherds of God's flock? Clearly elders. Elders is another word for shepherds. Our job is to care for all like this. Elders, not just the ones we know. Elders, not just the ones we like. We are to care for all like this. Past three weeks, I have been telling my wife there are so many people here, specifically in the back couple of rows, and I'm so glad you are our guest. But I don't think I know you each by name yet. And so our elders, I'm going to invite the elders this week. Some elders take that door. I'm going to take this door. We just love for you to introduce yourself. If you have to do it again, I'm sorry, but I just... We want to know you. This is a faith family, and it's hard to be a family if we don't actually know your name. So if you could just take an extra second, let us get out these doors, introduce yourself to us. We want to know you. We want to care for you. It would be a treat for us. Elders were to do this sacrificially. Elders know that by saying yes to being an elder that you place yourself in harm's way. Sheep will be attacked by wolves, wolves from the outside. 
Sometimes wolves from the inside. Wolves in sheep's clothing. And there is no promise that as an elder that you will not be unscathed. So men, we count the cost. God is faithful. He will provide a way for us to use the authority he's entrusted to us to provide for the church's good and to resist using our authority for selfish gain. Faith family, this is what you should be looking for in elders. Someone to provide, someone to protect, someone who will keep Jesus as the door and call out anything that tries to hop in over the fence. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We want to provide right, rich food for our people, and the food is they come in and out from his word. As a member, if you have felt the weight of authority in your life at any place, as a mom, as a dad, student leadership, I think of Lauren Trinka leading these young girls in music. There's a birthday party going on later tonight because of your idea. Thank you. Whatever leadership you have, if you have felt the weight of responsibility of it, and you have actually received good eldering, good shepherding here, I just pray it would encourage you to give thanks to God. Not necessarily to them, but just thank God. And I'd also ask this. If you've experienced good shepherding, it's by grace. We need God's grace. Would you bring our names before the throne of grace? Who will take Lillian Dehart's mantle? One of our prayer warriors. Who will take that mantle? I want to speak briefly to husbands, dads. If you're a husband, if you're a dad, men, you are under shepherds of your own little flock. God entrusted them to you. You've been entrusted with a wife, perhaps, or children. I want to encourage you, I want to remind you that your, your leadership is a stewardship. You will give an account, but they're not yours. They are the Lord's. And knowing who you are accountable to will help you do all that you can to make those flourish that you are accountable for. Remembering who you're accountable to will help you serve those that you're accountable for. How have you been tempted, men, to use your authority for your own benefit? I encourage you to ask your spouse. I encourage you to ask your children, how have I sinned against you? How am I using my authority for my own self-interest? Husbands, you're called to love your wives as Christ loved the church means sacrificially. We're to feed the flock, not exasperate the flock. Please don't rule over them harshly. Don't make your kids feel they're never good enough. Do not make them the slaves for your own selfish purposes. You don't have more minions to do more work. Use your authority to serve them. You are to use yourself for their good. 
Your call is to lead your family in such a way that they will want to listen. And even if they don't listen, it is not because they are uncertain of your love and sacrifice for them. Well, of the 2,000 passengers on the Titanic that fateful night, 75% of women, 50% of children survived. 75% of women, 50% of children survived on the Titanic. Only 20% of the men did. Only 20%. Why would that be the case? Because then there was a common knowledge of what it meant to be a man and a woman. It was not a gotcha phrase. It was just clear as day. Men saw it was their duty to protect and to provide for women and children to flourish under their care. A statue in D.C., where I'm from, I have a hard time finding it, but there's a statue in D.C. that was given by the women. I want to read to you the inscription on the front and the back. On the front, to the brave men who perished in the Titanic, they gave their lives that women and children might be saved, erected by the women of America. On the back, to the young and old, the rich and poor, the ignorant and the learned, all who gave their lives nobly to save women and children. As human beings, we can't get off this highway of leadership. You're going to be on the highway of leadership the rest of your life. You're either going to be wielding some kind of authority or you're going to be under somebody's authority. We all are. Faith family, may you always know the provision and protection of the good shepherd who leads his people. And may you always be under the care of those that feel first and foremost that they are submitting to the Lord's leadership before they wield any authority of their own. Would you follow Jesus because he knows his own people, he nurtures them, and he dies and lives for them. May God bless all of us in authority so that we would sacrificially know our sheep, nurture them, die and live for their flourishing. To God be the glory. Let's have a moment of silence to reflect on how you would like to obey this sermon, and then we'll stand and sing, He Leadeth Me. Steve, whenever you like.